Afghanistan is now under the full control of the Taliban. It took the armed group less than 10 days to sweep across every province and all the way to the presidential palace in the capital, Kabul. Over the last two weeks, Taliban fighters swept one province after another in their march across Afghanistan. And on Sunday, August 15th, they took over the capital of Kabul, entered the presidential palace, and declared an end to the 20-year war. But before that declaration, as the Taliban rapidly advanced throughout the country, we spoke with Pashtana Jirani. She's an Afghan activist who was witnessing it all firsthand. I wish the world knew and understood that uh, this war has no end. Like, it's, it's 20 years. Uh, my father went through the same thing. My grandfather went through the same thing. And now I'm here sitting in the 21st century and empowered Afghan women with everything that I have. And I'm still crying over the fact that my hometown will fall in a few hours. That's, that's my life. That's how tragic life is. Today, we're bringing you her story. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Pashtana Jirani is 23. She wasn't even alive in 1996, the last time the Taliban took over Kabul. She grew up as a refugee in Pakistan, and after high school, she moved back to her home country, where she went to university and started Learn Afghanistan, an NGO focused on education. And on Thursday, August 12th, she was in her home in Kandahar, Afghanistan's second biggest city, as the Taliban and government forces were fighting. This day has been a bit crazy, and uh, as you can see, I'm still crying because city might fall as soon as possible. So I'm not sure how, how to even comprehend everything that we are doing right here. Hours before Pashtana sent us that voice note, Taliban fighters had reached the prison in the city center. At that point, the city had been besieged for weeks. Bit by bit, the Taliban had been taking over districts across Kandahar province, including Spin Baldak. The Spin Baldak border crossing connects the city of Kandahar directly with Pakistan and is a major supply line for whoever controls it. And after weeks of circling the city, the fighting intensified. Kandahar has been crazy in the past two, three weeks. Everything is falling apart. First, it was Spinboldak that fell, and then the other districts are now, it's the city today. And of course, the fighting goes on, the rockets go on, there is a lot of airplane sounds, everything is crazy. People are taking refuge in shops and on roads and on footpaths. It's very, very hot in summer in Kandahar and people are still taking refuge on grounds. Like, they literally don't know where to go. I am unable to connect with my family in Spinbuldak. I have been unable to connect with my family in Dan. I've been unable to connect with people that I work with from all these districts. Majority of them have not made it to the safety. Majority of us are just stuck in this vicious circle of fighting and ongoing war. Pashtana says the quick fall of Afghanistan was at one time unimaginable to her. For me, it was like, you know, it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. We are strong now. We are educated now. 
we have an army we have everything but now i feel like the government has abandoned us the international community has abandoned us and we are just like literally left to the wolves or even monsters let's label them them and hours after pashtana sent those voice messages the Taliban claimed it had seized the city. Taliban is claiming control of Afghanistan's second biggest city, Kandahar. It wasn't the only provincial capital to collapse that day. First came Ghazni, which connects Kandahar and Kabul. News, the Taliban have captured the city of Ghazni, that's only about 90 miles southwest of us, here in the capital, Kabul. Ghazni is the 10th provincial capital to fall to the Taliban in only a week. Most have been in and then came Herat, Afghanistan's third largest city. In Herat, Taliban fighters stand proudly atop vehicles once belonging to the Afghan army. So on Friday, Pashtana left her home in Kandahar in an attempt to find safety. For her security, we won't be disclosing her location. About 10 hours after she fled, I spoke with her about what it was like to leave the home she had made for herself after spending her childhood as a refugee. Let's start with an introduction. My name is Pashtana Durani, and I'm the executive director for Learn Afghanistan. And apart from that, I love learning. That's that's me. I grew up in Quetta in a refugee camp until grade nine. Then I was sent to a boarding school. Then I was done with high school and I put my foot down and asked my father, I was like, I'm going to move back. I don't care if you are or not. I remember in my school, my professor, they would love to bash Afghanistan every way and any way, right? And especially when it's your identity and especially when you're a refugee, it's something that hits you a lot. And I was done with that. I wanted to go back. I wanted to live in my own country where I would be received as a human, right? As a citizen rather than just something who's alien. And also, I'm going to be very honest, I hold Afghanistan very dear to myself, right? That's the first thing I fell in love with and the first thing that I identified with. So I will always have a special place in my heart for Afghanistan, always. So she moved to Ainomina, a township on the edge of Kandahar. She told me she lives with her family, besides her father, who passed away last year. They have a home she calls pretty and cozy. I have this orange tree that uh, my driver loves watering and his wife, she's the cook. She loves uh, making fun of him every time he waters it because it literally has three oranges. And apart from that, we have these beautiful roses and pink flowers. I, I miss those, I miss those. I miss my room. From the window, I could look into the uh, front yard and I could see the flowers. It makes me feel so happy. I don't know, it's just like, you know, something about nature that it lights up my mood. The province of Kandahar is known for its capital, also called Kandahar. And to people outside the country, it's also known as the place where the Taliban began. Kandahar is the birthplace of the Taliban, and it's politically significant for the group. It's also a strategic province and a geopolitical gateway to Kabul and the broader region. For Pashtana, Kandahar is simply home. You know, when you're going through the plain, it's all very brown and deserty. And then you go to Arghandab, it's the greenest place on this planet I have seen. And of course, I haven't seen a lot, but oh my God. <laughs> you go to Dand, it's always green. It's always green. Amazing fruit. It's always fresh water. And then you go to the city, you have a lot of historical monuments. 
So Kandari's mix of modern, historical, ancient, uh, green, and at the same time desert. Everything is there. Like, you know, everything you could look around for is there. So we are speaking on Friday, August 13th, and you've recently left Kandahar after the Taliban reported it had seized the city, right? Can you tell me about the process of deciding to leave your home? What were some of the things you had to think about? I didn't decide it. I was forced into leaving by my family, by the elders, because if I stay, I'm going to make everyone around me a target. And they were like, you know, you're putting everyone at risk. You know, the last thing I would want to abandon is my house because my father left a lot of his books there to me. Uh, all my lands are in Kandahar. I love staying in Kandahar. I love the air. I love the water. I love everything about Kandahar. But me staying there made a lot of people a target. And I didn't want that to be happening. So I had to leave. In one of your voice notes to us, you said that Kandahar had been falling apart over the last few weeks and that you had been hearing planes and rockets. What were things like when you left? The Taliban people, they were celebrating. Even my friends send me this uh, voice note even now that they cannot sleep because the Taliban were firing whole day because they were celebrating it. And they were just showing it off in the street. They were walking around in the crowd. So by the time I left, they were celebrating. So what has the impact of the fighting been like on your family? What kinds of conversations are you all having about how to stay safe? It's less about the safety. I'm going to be honest, because when you live in Afghanistan for a few years, you just get used to a backup plan. What happens when this happens if the house is attacked? Her mother is the mother of a civil rights and political rights activist. She has to be ready all the time. My siblings are ready all the time. In the last few weeks, the conversations are about the fact that, thank God, our father is not alive anymore, because if he would have seen that white flag over the Spinball Duck border, it would have killed him again. That white flag being the flag of the Taliban. The fact that we couldn't get in touch with people that are close to us was emotional. I remember my siblings never crying, right? But now, every time we talk about Kandahar, about Afghanistan, about all this political situation, they cry. For people who are not even politically active, they hate politics, right? And they literally cry. My eyes were swollen from yesterday. So it's not about safety. It's always about the fact that you're losing and losing part of your identity or your whole identity as Afghan. And for women in Afghanistan, part of that identity began to change quickly. As the Taliban seized towns across the country, stories emerged of women being sent home from their jobs. Reuters reported that women who worked at a Kandahar bank were escorted home by gunmen and told they could send their male relatives to take their place at work. The fact that they asked the women in the bank not to go to work and send their male guardians or anyone else from their families to work. I love working. I love working. I'm a workaholic. Apart from that, I love teaching. I love connecting with my students. I love socializing with them. So from the angle that I stand for women like me, for the fierce women that I have worked with, it's going to be suffocating. It's going to be heartbreaking for them to live under that rule and let go of all the ambitions, all the things that they have done or they want to do. You tweeted recently that people who you voted for are responsible for the situation now. Can you talk about that? What did you expect to see from the government? And then what has actually happened? 
the government surrendered my city, my province, and then they didn't even try to resist. They didn't even try to act that they would resist. That makes me so furious at them right now. The fact that they were so greedy, they were corrupt. I voted for them because we believe in democracy. This is one hard gain that we have got in the past two decades, women's right to vote. And we vote for them and that's how they repay us back, by not even resisting, by failing us. There's a lot that's been said about the toppled government security response. But on Friday, while that government was still in power, Bashtana also said she was frustrated by how it treated a growing humanitarian crisis. You had humanitarian catastrophe and crisis going on. People were dying, people were starving, people were fleeing. What did you do? Nothing, right? People were IDPs within Kandahar. What did you do? Nothing. People are IDPs in parks right now in Kabul. Humanitarian catastrophe is building. Over 250,000 people, thousands of tents, hundreds spread across streets, parks and sidewalks. This is the situation in Kabul. Inability to act, that makes me furious at them. You're corrupt. Okay, all the other governments are corrupt. You're going to give me that excuse. But the fact that you didn't act on humanitarian crisis, that's just horrifying and mortifying. What sort of government is this? What different does that make you from the Taliban? So because the government didn't have a plan, and as you mentioned, your family always has a plan B, just from the experience of living in Afghanistan, without giving me too many details about what your plan B was, What can you tell me about when you made the decision to go to Plan B? How easy was that to do? Not easy at all, because I I waited for the last minute. But apart from that, in Afghanistan, in a tribal conservative society like ours, you do have to make allies when it comes to tribal ties, right? And over the course of years, from the tribe that I come, from the family that I come, I have developed those. um, And that makes it a bit easier. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's all never safe in Afghanistan, but somehow, like, you know, a privilege to have those ties. Yeah. Do you feel safe right now? No, never. It's just, I... uh, See, if I don't talk, I'm going to be safe. But if I stop talking, all these Afghan civilians are caught up. Nobody's talking about them. The international media doesn't know who to talk to, right? I had a million interviews today and uh, I haven't eaten or anything. But then at the same time, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, okay, what about those people in the park? They don't even have a shelter. I'm privileged. I still have a shelter. Every time I think about, okay, uh, I am tired. I think about the children that they had to leave their house. They didn't have even slippers in their feet, right? So you have to prioritize. I can claim all the love that I have for my country, but still not work for my people. That's just hypocritic. If I love my country, I have to make sure that I raise a voice, a concern when it comes to them. Bashtana was also frustrated at the disconnect between settlement talks that were going on in Doha, Qatar, between Afghan government envoys and the Taliban, and the reality people were living on the ground. So, see, the there are two warring parties, right? The central Afghan government, and then there is the Taliban. Taliban, have you seen that Doha office? I have. It's so posh, so exquisite, you cannot even think of it. Then there is Ark. That's the presidential palace where the Afghan central government was based. 
so pretty palace, right? They are living in air-conditioned office, uh, generators 24 by 7. And they, even if the country falls, they will have helicopters, they can leave. So Afghan government, the Taliban, they're already sitting in a very posh country, in a very luxurious life, right? Then there are people who are caught in between, right? What about them? What about their uh, rights, right? So these two, they are meeting in an air-conditioned office and talking about the people who have left all their lives, all their earnings, all their houses, everything. That doesn't legitimize them talking about us. It doesn't give them the right because if they were, one would stop killing the civilians and the other would start defending the civilians. And none of them did what they were supposed to do. It's always the people who would suffer. So Pashtana said that even if Afghanistan fell, government officials could fly their way out to safety. And less than two days after I spoke with her, that's basically what happened. The president of Afghanistan fled the country, saying he chose to avoid bloodshed. Afghanistan's president, Ashraf Ghani, has gone. He's left the country as Taliban leaders push for what they say is a peaceful transfer of power in Kabul. On Sunday, Ashraf Ghani, then the president of Afghanistan, fled the country as Taliban fighters closed in on the capital, Kabul. Some 20 years after the U.S.-led invasion drove the Taliban out of Kabul, here we see images of the Taliban essentially declaring their return to the helm of Afghanistan. There's nobody seemingly for the Taliban to share power with. They are the power, it seems. Hours after Ghani left, Taliban fighters entered the Arg, the presidential palace that Pashtana mentioned before. We have had the palace official handing over the presidential palace to those Taliban fighters. Taliban fighters inside the presidential palace declaring the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. They walked fully armed through the halls, sat behind the president's desk, and declared that the war was over. Since then, Taliban fighters have been patrolling Kabul and people across the country have been trying to make their way to some semblance of safety. Afghans now scrambling to get out the Kabul airport. Desperate crush at the Pakistan border crossing as people try to flee. And chaos at the airport. Tens of thousands of Afghans stormed onto the runways, desperate to leave, clinging onto aircraft, trying not to be left behind as the Americans pull out. Thousands of people came to the airport in Kabul in attempts to board planes out of the country. At least seven people were killed in the chaos. And by Tuesday, August 17th, the Taliban were holding a press conference in Kabul. We don't want a repeat of war. We want to do away with the factors of conflict. So the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan does not have any conflict with anybody. We want the fighting to end. Back on Friday... I had asked Pashtana what it was like to watch this war take place as someone who spent her childhood as a refugee and who is now again displaced. It's it's heartbreaking. It's emotional for me. It's very near to my heart. and I'm already in the process of like, you know, getting heartbroken. But at the same time, um, I'm worried about everyone that I know, everybody that uh, is near to my heart, my students, my staff, my people, my family. When I was a kid, I didn't know how Kandahar looked like, right? 
now I know what Qatar looks like. Now I know how Afghanistan looks like. So it's going to break me into a million pieces if I have to become a refugee again, if I have to flee again. I really don't want that to happen. It's, it's, I don't want that to happen. I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai with Dina Kisbe, Amy Walters, Priyanka Tilvey, Ney Alvarez, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Tom Binton is our story editor. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Elmilek is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back 